Thank you for being here again for the next episode of our Friday weekly podcast, the Class Action Weekly Wire. I'm Jen Riley, partner at Dwayne Morris, and joining me today is Associate Hari Kumar. Thank you, Hari, for being on the podcast. Great to be here, Jen. Today, we wanted to discuss trends and important developments with procedural issues in class action litigation. This topic is somewhat of a catch-all in terms of the various legal issues involved. So as most of our listeners know, class action litigation presents significant procedural issues for litigants and courts alike. In 2022, courts addressed myriad procedural issues in class action litigation. Hari, can you talk about some of the highlights in 2022 in this area of the law? Absolutely. So jurisdiction is always an important consideration in class action litigation. Corporate defendants are rarely sued in their state of incorporation or headquarters location. So the situs of the litigation is uniquely important for the outcome of the case. And jurisdiction is always a critical factor in litigation strategy. Uh, the First Circuit addressed these issues in the context of a nationwide wage and hour collective action in Waters et al. v. Day and Zimmerman. In that matter, plaintiff, a former employee, filed a collective action alleging that defendant failed to pay him and others similarly situated overtime compensation in violation of the FLSA. Defendant moved to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction based on Bristol-Myers Squibb et al. v. Superior Court of California, which held that state courts could not entertain a state law mass action if it included out-of-state plaintiffs with no connection to the forum state. The district court denied defendant's motion to dismiss and declined to extend the personal jurisdiction principles in Bristol-Myers to FLSA cases. On appeal, the First Circuit affirmed the district court's ruling. Opt-ins who filed consent forms with, uh, with the district court became parties to the suit upon filing those forms. The First Circuit opined that finding that the district court lacked jurisdiction over non-resident opt-in claims would, quote, force those plaintiffs to file separate lawsuits in separate jurisdictions against the same employer based on the same or similar alleged violations of the FLSA. The First Circuit determined that the FLSA did not contemplate that outcome. Thanks, Tari. This jurisdictional question and the application of the principles in Bristol-Myers Squibb really continue to divide courts in 2022. In contrast to the First Circuit, we saw the Sixth Circuit, the Third Circuit, and the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling to the contrary, holding that a court or a district court must have a basis for either general jurisdiction over the defendant or a basis for specific personal jurisdiction over the defendant with respect to the claim of each opt-in plaintiff. Um, notably, a district court issued a um, decision on this recently in a case called Hood versus Capstone Logistics. Um, that decision was a report and recommendation from a magistrate judge that followed these courts, the sixth, the third, and the eighth circuits. Um, in that case, the plaintiff filed a nationwide collective action contending that the defendant violated the FLSA. The defendant moved to strike that nationwide collective action allegation, and the magistrate judge recommended that the court grant the motion. Um, the argument was that pursuant to Bristol-Myers, the federal court lacked personal jurisdiction over the defendant to adjudicate the claims of the workers outside of the state of North Carolina. Um, the magistrate judge agreed with the defendant and found that although the issue had not yet been decided in the Western District of North Carolina or in the Fourth Circuit, um, that the court should follow the Third, Sixth, and Eighth Circuits. 
um, and the reasoning in Bristol-Myers and should hold that the district court may not exercise personal jurisdiction over those FLSA claims by potential collective action members that don't arise from their work in that state. Venue is another important issue that impacts class actions, especially in multi-district litigation. In Stewart et al. v. First Student, Inc., the plaintiffs alleged violations of the FLSA. Plaintiffs and the defendant filed cross motions to transfer venue. The court granted plaintiff's motion and denied defendant's motion. The defendant sought out to have the matter transferred to the U.S. District Court of the Southern District of Ohio. The plaintiffs requested that it was transferred to the U.S. District Court of the Northern District of Ohio. The court had stayed the case pending the Third Circuit's decision in Fisher et al. v. Federal Express Corp., and it ultimately ruled in Fisher that FLSA opt-in plaintiffs with no connection to the forum state must either forfeit their claims or seek a transfer to, quote, a court that can exercise general personal jurisdiction over their employer. The court noted that several plaintiffs lived in the Northern District of Ohio, and the defendant was based in the Southern District of Ohio. So either venue would, would be appropriate. However, in examining the private interest factors, the court reasoned that the convenience of, par of the parties weighed slightly in favor of transfer to the Northern District of Ohio because the plaintiffs lived in the Northern District. The issue of standing was also a hot topic in 2022, and courts continue to assess whether named plaintiffs adequately alleged Article III standing to bring a variety of claims as class actions. Notably, in a case called Schumacher versus SC Data Center, the Eighth Circuit held that a named plaintiff in a putative class action failed to sufficiently allege Article III standing based on a prospective employer's purported failure to comply with several technical requirements of the FCRA or Fair Credit Reporting Act. The court in that case sided with the Ninth Circuit, disagreed with the Third Circuit and the Seventh Circuits, and held that the prospective employer's failure to provide the plaintiff with a copy of her consumer report before denying her employment did not qualify as an injury, in fact, sufficient to confer Article III standing. In Lee et al. v. Samsung Electric America, Inc., the court examined standing concepts in ruling on class certification. In Lee, the court found that claims of fraud among various consumer protection laws were not appropriate because the alleged injuries required an individualized analysis, not appropriate for class certification. In contrast, in Kelman et al. v. Spokio, the court showed a willingness to find harm based on allegations of misappropriation of personal information. The plaintiffs alleged that the defendant's website provided users' profiles with redacted information that violated their rights of publicity by misappropriating their names and likeness in violation of several state laws. The court determined that the plaintiff's allegations were sufficiently concrete to confer standing. The court ruled that misappropriating names, likenesses, and personas was a common law harm that is codified in several states. Thanks, Hari. Let's discuss just one more topic where the Ninth Circuit issued an important en banc decision over the past year. That topic relates to the impact of uninjured class members in class action litigation as a defense. This case I wanted to talk about is Olene Grocery uh, versus Bumblebee Foods. In that case, it involved three classes of tuna purchasers who alleged that tuna suppliers engaged in a price-fixing conspiracy in violation of federal and state antitrust laws. 
in certifying the classes, the district court relied on the analysis of a plaintiff's expert that purported to show that the alleged conspiracy resulted in substantial price impacts that injured purchasers on a class-wide basis. So the defendant's expert argued otherwise and that there was a substantial proportion of the class that did not suffer an injury. Nevertheless, the Ninth Circuit ultimately held that the plaintiff's showing was sufficient for class certification. And the ultimate resolution of that injury question was an issue for the jury to decide at trial. The Sixth Circuit also confronted the issue of identifying injured class members in Tariffy Properties LLC v. Cuyahoga County. In that, in that case, uh, it affirmed the denial of certification of a putative class of owners of abandoned properties to whom the defendant failed to reimburse the remaining equity when it foreclosed on their properties. Given the many factors that influence property values, the Sixth Circuit reasoned that determining whether any given property owner was owed money required, quote, proof that is variable in nature and ripe for variation in application, such that many trials would be necessary to determine the remaining equity in each foreclosed property. Thanks, Hari. Great insight and analysis as always. I know that these issues are only some of the ways that procedural matters can impact and shape class action litigation. The ways in which both sides utilize these procedural tools and the manners in which courts rule on their applications uh, is something that's going to continue to evolve in 2023 and be a very hot topic for continued discussion. Well, I wanted to thank our audience for joining us this week. Um, and thank you, Hari, for um, your insightful uh, feedback and analysis. Thanks, Thanks everyone. So we'll see you next week. 